0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Are you worried, Vitus?
1: About myself? No. The girl? Perhaps. Oh. You're interested? Maybe. I thought so. Well, I'm not. Only spiritually.
2: Spiritually.
1: Tonight. It's the dark of the moon. And we shall gather and... You had better come, Vetus. The ceremony will interest you. Don't pretend, Hjalmar. There was nothing spiritual in your eyes when you looked at that girl. You plan to keep her here. Perhaps.
2: I intend to let her go.
1: Is that a challenge, Vetus?
2: Yes, if you dare.
1: Fight it out alone. Do you dare play chess with me
2: for her?
1: Yes. I will even play you chess for her, provided if I win. They are free to go. You won't win, Beatrice.
0: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Rob St. Mary.
3: I have a black cat. I call him Max.
0: Also with us this week is Ms. Maitland McDonough.
4: I have a black cat. His name is Pan.
0: This week we are looking at the 1934 horror classic, The Black Cat. The first big American studio film ever- and the last big American studio film directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, The film is a very loose adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe short story and stars Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff in a taut game of life and death. Maitland, as our guest, when was the first time you saw The Black Cat and what did you think?
4: I think I probably saw The Black Cat for the first time when I was a kid on either Channel 9 or 11, which was the two local stations that showed old horror movies as part of a huge package of stuff that they didn't have to pay a lot of money for but i remember seeing it quite late at night after everybody else was asleep and i'm not sure that i knew precisely what to make of it but i knew that it looked like nothing i had ever seen
3: i think i probably saw bits of it over the years but this is the first time i can remember sitting down and watching the whole thing all the way through which uh, doesn't take you that long because it's less than an hour just uh, sort of reacquainting myself with it, I have to say it—it it is quite good. Of course, it is 80 plus years old now and does have the feel of those early films. But I think for all of that, in terms of atmosphere and story and sort of the uh, the oddness that's in here, it, uh, it it really is kind of singular in a way. And plus, it also reminds me of that quote from the movie Ed Wood, where the uh, assistant uh, gets chewed out by the Bela Lugosi character played by... Martin Landau over the quote sidekick comment.
0: You know which movie of yours I love, Mr Lugosi? The Invisible Ray. You were great as Karloff's sidekick.
2: Yeah. Karloff.
0: Sidekick. Fuck you. Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit. That limey cocksucker can rot
2: in hell for all I care.
0: I saw this one for the first time I think two years ago they were doing one of these horror movie marathons in Chicago and I we actually did a little uh, special about it, recorded it on the road and it was it was very bizarre for me because I'm watching this movie and all of a sudden I run into a line that I knew backwards and forwards it was the line about sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me the natural perhaps
3: Maloney, perhaps not. Which to me is like one of the great kind of like little laugh lines in here, which you don't really expect to come out of Lagosi's mouth.
0: And it's right from Head, the the filmmakers of Head Use that line during their kind of channel-changing montages during that film. And so I knew that, and I think that line is even in our head episode. And so I run into this quote that I had heard so many times before, and I was like, oh, okay, this is where this is from. But I was completely blown away by this movie. Yeah, it's only about an hour long, but the look of it, the pacing, just how much stuff is happening in this movie, I mean, it's kind of remarkable that it is only an hour long, but is just packed to the gills with so many great things happening, and then pitting. Karloff against the Lugosi, this is 1934, they are pretty fresh off of their successes as Dracula and Frankenstein, and those two going head-to-head, just two, I consider, master thespians going at it in this just bizarro world that Ulmer created, I, uh, I couldn't could not tell you how happy i was to see this for the first time and it was it holds up every time i watch it i get a little bit more out of it and i just really enjoy this one
4: well i think we need to talk about the stuff because this movie is so unbelievably perverted it's it it, it is mind boggling what deviant behavior is not in this movie starting with necrophilia incest I don't even want to start the list because it'll make me sound like a more deviant person than I myself think of myself as being. But it is mind-boggling how perverse it is for a film made in 1934 by a mainstream Hollywood studio. the, The fact that... Movies like this were made under a reasonable degree of supervision. You know, there was very much an attitude that if you were working with filmmakers whom you knew could bring a movie in on time and on budget, you didn't sit on them throughout the production of uh, of a movie, but scripts were reviewed, everybody looked at them, and yet somehow this just sailed through with this unbelievable bounty of bizarre material in it that is here today for us to enjoy.
3: See, and my question on that is, as I was watching it, and I have to apologize. I mean, I should have looked it up, but I was like, this has to be a pre-code film. I mean, it's either that or it just got through the censors without a problem. And then on top of it, I cannot think of a film that directly relates to World War I so much. In that the film, you have Lugosi in the beginning, and he says, it's been this many years since I've been back here. In uh, the war and they keep mentioning the war. And if you do the math, it's 1919 versus the date of the release of the film. So there's this whole f- idea that, you know, the war shattered everyone. The war was this horrible thing that destroyed people's lives. And then there's even that line in there about, you know, uh, about you know, are these people any worse than those who had their, you know, limbs torn off and things like that? So it really plays on this concept of just how shattering World War One was.
4: Oh, you're right. It plays into it absolutely directly. I mean, there is a point where one of them says, we are the living dead. We died on that hill during the war, and yet we're still walking around. It, it's really extraordinary. I mean, it has a kind of power that I think is absolutely analogous to the power of all quiet on the Western Front, except that nobody went to this movie thinking, I'm going to see a movie about the First World War and about the effects of what we now call post-traumatic stress syndrome, but was then called shell shock, you know, the way in which the horrors of, of that trench war absolutely
0: destroyed people's minds and souls. So just for the record, the Hayes Code came into effect in 1930, so this was a post-code film.
3: Which is pretty amazing, considering everything that's in here. I mean... Given the length of it, I'm almost wondering if there was stuff that was even cut out, where there was stuff that was even crazier, and they're like, you know, you got to get rid of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, okay, well, here's the movie we're left with, but we're still able to get, you know, the other stuff through.
0: Well, from what I understand, they even went back in and did some reshoots after, like, an initial cut of it, and that's where some of those Brides of Karloff kind of come into it, which are just... Some of the strangest things, and yeah, that's kind of where like the necrophilia comes into it. And I, yeah, I didn't know what to make of these women in glass cages the first time that I saw it, and just these kind of—they looked like the living dead, kind of hanging out in this trophy type, you know, hallway that uh, of Karloff's. I mean, just uh, yeah, it kind of took my breath away.
4: Well, I'm sure you didn't know what to make of it. You just couldn't quite believe it.
0: Yeah, it just uh, it really struck me. Like again, how can this be 1934? How can I be seeing this in this this film that was made then? I mean, yes. Dracula and Frankenstein, very mature films. We know that there are very mature films that are coming out around this time, and this is one of the quote-unquote universal horror films, but it just strikes such a different tone. I mean, it has that gothic thing of a James Whale-type movie, but it just takes it in a different direction It just feels like it's it's almost like it's being played in a minor chord where those were the majors. It feels like everything is just kind of being twisted a little bit more and makes you feel a little bit more unsettled.
4: One of the things I love about it is that it is the quintessential old dark house movie, and yet the old dark house is this incredible Bauhaus-inspired modern construction sitting up on a hill. I mean, it's all glass brick and curving aluminum staircases, and that incredible shiny floor that I don't know what it's made out of, but it's something, it's a very modern material. It, it really is this incredible collision of the old and the new, when you look at the decor of this film, that makes it more disturbing than if it were a conventional gabled and towered and widowed-walked
0: kind of house. I want to know what you guys think of this as far as we have these two powerhouses that I've talked about before, Lugosi and Karloff, and they are both veterans of this war. One has imprisoned the other in during the war, but at the heart of the movie are these newlyweds, Peter and Joan Allison, who come in, and they're obviously they're our stand-in. They're the audience's stand-in for this stuff, but it was interesting to me that they're this American couple abroad, which... It's like they are there for the tourism aspect, whereas Legosi and Karloff, they're fighting old battles that have never been finished for them. They are definitely still, you know, in that, as you said, the post-traumatic stress. You know, they they are still living out World War One.
3: Well, I mean, I think that the answer is in really how you phrase it. I mean. I think it might even be a commentary on sort of American involvement in World War One. You know, they came over, they fought, and then they left. So they didn't have to live with the long-term effects in that way. I mean, there was some effects, right, but not the, the, the scarred, you know, psyche that just continued to go on and on and on, I guess, in Europe post-war. Well, and I
4: think, as you said, you know, the fact is, Yes, people came home scarred by the war, but they didn't have to walk on the same streets, and climb the same hills and go up to houses that they knew were built on piles of bodies and bones, because it all happened overseas. And that doesn't mean that there's no trauma, but it does mean that you're physically removed from, you know, if you will, the scene of the crime. Whereas Lugosi and Karloff's characters here obviously grew up here, lived here, And came back here to the worst possible place they could have come back to. I mean, Lugosi's coming back after spending 15 years in a in a in a a military prison, and three years before that on the front. Karloff is there, having deserted his having deserted his men, basically left them to die, made some kind of deal with the Russian soldiers, cut out, and come out of it pretty okay. I mean, the two of them are complete products of the absolutely visceral experience of that war, and they are still living in the midst of
0: it. And it goes even deeper with the whole idea that Karloff has stolen Lugosi's wife. And I'm not exactly sure what happens to the wife, though she seems to be well-preserved as part of this mausoleum of women that Karloff has. But it's the daughter, and I'm not sure how old the daughter was when this all happened, but she is now living with Karloff. I'm assuming Karloff's lover, they're sleeping in the same bed. So there's that kind of weird perversion that's happening in this film as well.
4: Absolutely. I think the daughter was probably three years old when, when the horrible trauma happened. And, I think we can assume, doesn't realize that her mother is embalmed in that bizarre, modern art kind of case down in the basement. But still, she is clearly his lover, and the whole thing is just creepy, creepy, creepy. Starting from the first moment that you see Karloff rise out of the the bed he shares with her,
0: I love when he rises out of bed, that beautiful silhouette of him coming up like Nasferatu, the way that he rises up out of that bed.
4: He's like a puppet on strings or something. It, it, there's something profoundly unnatural about it. And it is incredibly creepy at a point in the movie where you really don't know how creepy the stuff that's coming up is. It, it, it's your first real sign that there is something very, very wrong going on in this house.
0: There's something wrong with us. Something very, very wrong with us. The way that the dialogue, I mean, that the... Describe some of these things so beautifully. Like we were talking about the way that these, you know, the the castle is basically built on a burial ground. And to hear Lugosi talk about, you know, tens of thousands of men died here, the ravine was piled 12 deep with dead, and the little river below was swollen red, a raging torrent of blood. That's one of the first images that we're being told about in this film. And it definitely is, uh, it's not honeymoon talk. It's it, This is, we've got our American couple kind of hanging out with uh, Dr. Vitas, the Bela Lugosi character, and him laying this on them. Yeah, it's there's definitely a lot of history here. And to hear the way that he describes this stuff, and really so much of the dialogue in this film is as rich as that.
4: And actually, that particular descriptor is one that was drawn, I think, quite directly from history, though I think it might have been a French fort that was overrun in that way. So there's a real level of realism there, and the way in which the scene in their, their carriage is, is, is staged is really remarkable, because they're sunk in darkness for most of it, and there are just these odd flashes of light that light up their faces. It, it's un, it is incredibly film noir-looking a full six years before uh, Stranger on the Third Floor, I think is the title, the film that most people consider the first true noir film was made. It is incredibly noir in its look from beginning to end.
3: The one thing about the um, woman in the glass case kind of thing had me thinking of, uh, and I don't think he was dead then, but had me thinking of like Lennon. You know, like I've been these uh, dictators in certain places and then, you know, saved their bodies and uh, really had a, a feeling of taxidermy, which is what I kind of consider, you know, Lenin's tomb to be all about in a particular way.
4: Which it certainly is. And it's, it's, that, that's a, a culture that goes all the way back to the Egyptians, the idea that if you preserve people's bodies, you preserve their souls and their essence. Which is a fundamentally creepy thing, because it basically means that the living are living among the dead, and that the dead have this kind of special stature, you know, they're embodying the people they were when they were alive, except that I think most everybody can see that they are these bizarre simulacra, even if, if they are the real bodies, they've been converted into something that's, that's not anything that ever lived,
0: really. And correct me if I'm wrong, aren't they hanging from their hair?
4: You know, I don't know about that, and I was actually thinking about it when I rewatched it, because their hair has a real bright of Frankenstein look. It definitely appears to be suspended in some way. But there aren't a lot of really close shots that let you see what's going on inside those those cases, whether maybe there's some liquid in there that they're suspended in, or whether, I, I don't know. Quite honestly, I, I couldn't figure it out
3: physically. Yeah, that was the thought that I had was the whole sort of you know Nefertiti look, Bride of Frankenstein idea. Like, and this is a, obviously a year or so before that movie came out.
0: I love the whole idea. You, you talked about the uh, this reminding you of uh, Lenin a little bit. I was also reminded of a film that would come a few more years later. I was also reminded of the chess game in The Seven Seal because it really does feel like there's more at stake than obviously a chess game. And there are lives at stake in this chess game, but it really does feel like Lugosi's soul is on the line when it comes to this game that we have them playing Lugosi and Karloff through this film. And it's just, I mean, it's a fairly obvious metaphor, but it just worked for me that seeing these two guys sit down and just kind of play the mind game as well as the physical game just really did it for me
4: a very physical manifestation of the war of the souls that's going on and although I'm sure somebody could come up and say oh right, they're playing a chess game, oh that's such a cliche it doesn't play like a cliche at all. It plays like an intellectual game which is of course what you know. chess is the quintessential game of mind. There's very little cheating in chess. I mean if you're cheating you're going to get caught. It really is a game of infinite strategy, which is why I was always so bad at it. You know, I, I, I could play two moves ahead, but a, but beyond that, it was with forget it. So I was never, ever going to win a game against anybody good. It, it's a long game, and you can see that, metaphorically, that's what Vitas Spardigast and Jean-Marc go playing. They're playing a long game. It's a game that has its roots 15 years ago, 20 years ago almost, and they're going to play it out to the end.
3: Yeah, and chess obviously is a war metaphor as well in terms of the pieces and, and everything and about fighting on two sides and all of that stuff and the idea of pawns and who are the pawns, you know, the use of the metaphor of a pawn in, in the game. and. And, and sacrificing one piece for another to make a larger move later. So that's you know, you can read many different things in there. I think, like you were saying, the idea of it being a cliche, I think, would be used in modern time. But I don't think 1934, I don't think that would be as played out because people wouldn't have seen that in film or maybe even in uh, other places in media or books or things like that as its use as a stand in, as a symbolism.
4: I think you're right. It was absolutely not a cliché in film then, although I think it already had a pretty solid history in literature. Film was a new medium and allowed you to actually show a chess game. And on the one hand, you can say, well, there are a few things less exciting than showing a chess game. Because it is two, two people sitting on either side of a board thinking for a really long time and then moving a piece. But in fact, there is an incredible concentrated kind of energy to chess that I think is very suited to
0: film. And I kind of wonder if some of the other people that are in this movie, because we've really concentrated on the two, but there are a host of other characters that are involved in this thing. And I kind of wonder if they are almost you know, the pawns when it comes to this, because the Peter and Joan characters... Yes, they are our foils. We do experience this through them. But then we have some of the other characters, like the Major Domo or Tamal or um, the young Vertigast girl, who, as far as I know, has her mother's name. So she's Karen, the mother, and Karen, the the younger. And also it's the same actress playing both, which is another kind of weird twist to it. So it's almost like it is kind of... uh, I don't know, incestuous or necrophilia kind of stuff there when you're sleeping with the daughter who looks like the mother and the mother is preserved in a class case. Just uh, Yeah, I want to call up my therapist and talk about this kind of stuff because it is just absolutely out there.
4: I think it plays completely into the way Posig is is characterized because he's somebody who has constructed a complete, artificial, fully realized world around himself. And I think to him, the mother and the daughter are interchangeable. They're, they're just things. They, they are like chess pieces that he can move around. So the fact that there are two Karens really doesn't even bother him in the way it would bother anybody remotely normal. It's just part of the world that he's built around himself within that house, built on that pile of bones. And it, it's very, very creepy. It, it's very psychologically disturbing in a way that, I think I think people have written about it but I think often when people write about the black cat they write about the style of it above the psychological intensity of it and I think it's it's actually very intense
0: quite honestly I have to say that the satanism angle always takes me by surprise even though I've seen this film multiple times now I always forget that there's going to be a satanic ritual Pretty much dead center in this film. And it's like, okay, where did this come from?
4: Where that came from was Alistair Crowley, who was very much in the news at that time for his temple of, what was it, Soth or Selma or whatever it was. You know, he managed to make quite a scandal by being the Satanist du jour uh, with all his proclamations and his kind of harem of women. And it was a big thing it was in the press. So I think that's the origin of the satanic aspect of this film. I, I don't think that most Americans, for example, really had any keen sense that Satanism was something they should be worried about, that they should be concerned that maybe the, the couple down the, down the road whom they thought were a little odd might be Satanists. But it did play into, I think, an idea about European decadence, things that were going on in places that weren't America, that I think Ulmer chose to harness
2: for this film. Yeah,
3: they weren't playing their records backward on the Victrola just yet at that time, I guess.
2: I'll slow this down a little bit. Listen for "Here's to My Sweet Satan."
0: All right, all right. Here's to my sweet Satan. Y'all hear that? Yeah, Satanism in America wasn't invented till the 1970s, I think. That's when uh, Peter Fonda and Warren Oates were running away from them.
3: The American stuff probably has to do with like Fallout Post Manson, and then you know those crazy hippies that, that got a little too strange as the 80s wore on.
0: You know, Rob, we've actually seen part of this movie. When we covered mock-up on Moo, There's a scene of this satanic ritual going on as a stand-in for what Crowley was doing, so it all kind of plays back on itself. You know, Crowley was the inspiration, as Malin was just saying, and then Craig Baldwin used this to kind of represent what Crowley was up to, even to the point where he's, he was the one for me who pointed out John Carradine on the organ at the satanic ritual, which I had never noticed until I saw a mock-up on Moo.
3: In this film, John Carradine. Exactly. Because yeah. yes. Carradine's in, um, he's in what, Bride of Frankenstein or Frankenstein? I can't remember which.
0: I don't remember him being in either of those, but he might have been. Yeah,
3: I think he was in one of those early Universal films. It would have been in the culture because he was, he was getting attention and all of that stuff. And was still around, actually. I think he was still... Doing his thing uh, would be Crowley until the 40s. I think he died sometime in the 40s.
4: No, actually, he lived quite well beyond that. I mean, he really did work that satanic thing for decades. And actually, the other person that you you have to think of looking at Carlos' character is um, Anton LaVey. Because I swear, he must have seen this film when he was putting together his handbook for things that good Satanists wore. Karloff's wardrobe. Absolutely the Anton
0: LaVey wardrobe.
3: The only thing he's missing is the uh, shaved head.
0: And Karloff has that great widow's peak going on here, where he just looks like he looks like a monster, even without the makeup.
4: But he also looks like looks like a piece of modernist architecture, which is what's kind of great. I mean, it's all angles and shadows, which is fabulous. I also love that medallion that he's wearing when he conducts the black mass. I don't know if you remember it, but it's uh, it's kind of a U shaped piece of wire with two little loops on the top. It, quite honestly, it looks like a cock and balls. And then there's a, an upside-down star inside of it. It's really quite elegant and yet quite vulgar at the same time.
3: Yeah, I think uh, Anton LaVey would approve.
4: Oh, totally. <laughs> My God, he would have put it on every curtain in his house.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the The other thing that I love in here, and this has more to do with the credits, is the fact that, Karloff is just listed as Karloff, just one name, like Madonna or something.
4: Well, I think that was kind of the post-Karloff the Uncanny era, where you know he was still a one-name star, but he didn't have to have an adjective
0: anymore. If memory serves, wasn't he billed as question mark in uh, Frankenstein? I'm trying to remember. There was a weird credit for that one. Yeah,
3: he was not listed. He's got a question mark, yeah. So they were trying to play up on, you know, was it a real... I think it was kind of a play off the whole sort of um, Max Schreck thing in uh, Nosferatu. Where, you know, it's like, wow, the guy really did look like that. You know, it wasn't makeup kind of thing. You know, it was like like, like the marketing around the Blair Witch back in the late 90s. You know, hey, this is real.
0: We caught real Satanists on tape doing their, their horrific rituals and trying to, I mean, and I should say that, uh, you know, Joan is in danger here when it comes to this stuff because it sounds like her virtue is going to be um, at stake when it comes to this.
4: Well, it sounds that quite precisely. I mean, Lugosi says to Karloff, "You look with anything but spiritual when you looked at that girl." So it's pretty clear that he's got the number there.
0: Kind of beating the the drum when it comes to this whole thing of, isn't it strange that this early film was so perverse? But it just is so striking to me. Yes, I understand that people were very sophisticated in the 1930s. But again, you know, to to Rob's point earlier, this is a postcode film. I think that this was one of those films that really made the the haze Code kind of buckle down uh, because it was just so out there when it came to this. Because we haven't even gotten to, to me, what is the most terrifying part of the movie. And I'm not talking about the black cats that scare the bejesus out of Bela Lugosi at every left and right turn. Do you think that the black cats were just kind of there as a remnant of the the post story or are we seeing anything more to those cats?
3: I had a weird sort of like first view when I went through it. I was like, is this some sort of like sexual metaphor in some way? Because I thought like the way Lugosi and Karloff kind of look at each other and some of their early dialogue almost implied some sort of like homoerotic stuff going on between them. And then the cat shows up and he's scared of the cat. So obvious, like, the cat is a stand in for lady parts. I know I was like, What's going on here with these two guys leering at each other and then I'm scared of cats.
4: Oh well let me just come out and say it. There's that scene where Karloff is walking through the gallery of dead women stroking a pussy.
0: I mean, what can you say? Strange about the cat. Jones seemed so curiously affected when you killed it. I had no idea that he killed the cat until they said that. Yeah.
4: And it is odd how how completely unhorrified they are by that I mean you know he, he, he killed the cat with a dagger I'd be really upset by that
3: yeah I mean in today's world the whole film would be about what the hell is your problem why did you kill the cat they'd spend like a half hour on that in the film
4: you cat killer you <laughs> you know that that, that 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 would be his defining characteristic and yet it, it's um, it's essentially just a it's an aside almost. In the character building there He has a horror of cats And therefore he threw a dagger at one and killed it I want to say, dude, get a grip
3: Congratulations, because those things are pretty wily I mean, I've thrown, like, you know Toys at my cats and never been able to hit them Because they move around too fast
0: No daggers?
3: No daggers, come on (laughs) I love my cats. Although I do have a friend of mine that when I was watching this, I'm like, I totally have to send this to Noah because every time he would come over, he would call my black cat Max the devil. So I'm like, here you go. You and Lugosi got something going on here, pal.
0: Let's go ahead and talk about the end of this film. If you haven't seen this film, spoiler alert, because, uh, you know, it's only 80 some years old. But here we go anyway the flaying alive scene my god my jaw was on the floor the first time that i saw this i could not believe what i was seeing i could not believe that here we go lugosi getting his revenge against karloff and he's going to whip the skin off of his back and they shot it so effectively that i I couldn't believe that they could have this in this film.
3: Well, maybe that's the the payoff for the cats. I mean, the old saying, you know, more than one way to skin a cat. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure out. I mean, that the, the cats, as I said, for the title, uh, you would think would make a bigger point uh, within the structure of the film. But it just, like I said, we kind of belabored that point. But maybe that's part of the reason why he was like, hey, let's see if we can put that skin the cat metaphor in here
4: actually looking at it, and all I could think of was Hellraiser, which is certainly many decades beyond the atrocities of this film. But I, I really thought, wow, that that's like the flaying of uh, Frank, which is kind of pretty goddamn horrifying. And even though you don't see very much in this film, what you do see is extremely impressive. It absolutely gives you the sense of what's going on, and it, it's it's completely horrifying.
0: Jesus went. And this is just one of those moments where you're like, my God, Edgar Ulmer knew how to direct. This really can take you to a place where you didn't expect to go.
4: I think that's probably the effect the Black Cat has on on most people who are not the kind of I'm trying to think of a word for it, That uh, I'm just going to go for asshole. People who aren't the kind of assholes who think, oh, all black and white movies are boring, so I don't like them. But anybody who is unencumbered by that prejudice looking at, at the black cat, I think, really has to be gobsmacked by it. Because it is an astonishing movie in the
0: places it's willing to go. Does this film end with an explosion? Yes. As a matter of fact,
3: the way the explosions look actually remind me of, and I think it was restaged footage or it was footage that I remember seeing from early films of like bombs going off in World War I. Like it actually with the hill and the way the explosions are, are done looks like the war in a way.
4: And certainly there is a whole lead-up. I mean, two or three times at least people refer to the fact that the entire house is connected to some mountain of dynamite somewhere. So you you want to be careful about lighting fires and shooting off guns, and there are are levers on walls that if you pull them, they're going to set off this incredible explosive exchange that will destroy everything.
3: The self-destruct
0: buttons.
4: Yep, it's the self-destruct button.
0: Big, shiny red button. Whatever you do, don't push that button. Yep,
4: it's the one that has Do Not Touch written under it in really huge letters. Yeah,
0: that one.
1: Oh, how long can trusty cadet Stimpy hold out? How can he possibly resist the diabolical urge to push the button that could erase his very existence? Will his tortured mind
3: give in to its uncontrollable desires? Can he
1: the temptation to push the button that even now beckons him ever closer. Will he succumb to the maddening urge to eradicate history at the mere push of a single button? The beautiful, shiny button! The jolly candy-like button! Will he hold
4: out,
2: folks? Can he hold out?
4: But You know, the thing is, although it's actually very funny, it also does play into, again, the larger psychology of the film, which is that both Verdegast and Poltic are completely destroyed by their wartime experience. And one of them has been a jail that, in a jail that he could not control all these years, and the other one has built himself a jail that's completely filled with, you know, walls that are attached to dynamite. So he's built himself a house that at any moment could explode. It's a startling symmetry, I think.
0: Surrounded himself with trophies of dead women, and the I don't know his relationship with the other women, but we have the relationship to the one that we know for sure. So just yeah, he is he's in a hell of his own making, whereas the seems to be in in a hell of Karloff's making. It's very appropriate that they end up destroyed at the end of this movie because, as you said, they were destroyed going into it. They were The Walking Dead. So there's no better way for this thing to end. It's not one of those, you know, atomic Superman, every film must end with an explosion kind of thing, but it was one of the more appropriate explosions at the end of a horror film.
4: Absolutely. It's the explosion that you know is coming from the moment that you begin to understand who those two characters are. I mean, you know that there can be no good ending to this. The best possible ending is that maybe these poor young Americans might be able to get away unscathed, but that's it. Even they are not unscathed. I'm sorry, no matter how happy they look at the end, you don't walk away from that kind of thing and be, hey, I'm okay. We were on our honeymoon. We met this guy on the train. We were tortured. We were terrified. We were trapped. But... It's okay. We're fine now. We're going to go meet my mom in Vienna.
3: All's well that ends well.
0: Isn't that what the old Shakespeare said?
4: Yes, precisely.
0: By the time we get to Vienna, it'll all be a distant memory.
4: Ah, it'll just be a good story to tell people at parties. It's a shame we don't have any slides we can show them.
0: The
3: thing that I also like about the film is it has basically a postscript because the film could have ended with the explosion of the house and all of that, but no, it ends with the couple on the train and they're reading what appears to be a film review. So it actually ends with a criticism of of another film or another project in a way, and them sort of discussing it just a bit.
4: It's actually a book review. Uh, The the husband is a, a writer of mystery novels, and it's a review of his new novel that suggests that, you know, the plot twists he's thought out really are preposterous, and it would be really good if in future he could confine himself to things that people could believe. As opposed yeah. to what's just happened to them, yeah.
3: Yeah, so I, I kind of like that. I like the idea of using uh, a critique to sort of end the piece and have this sort of, you know, little humorous aside at the end to go, hey, these people don't know what they're talking about because crazy stuff happens.
2: But what I also
4: like is that it doesn't have the kind of music that could easily accompany that sort of ending and make it seem silly, you know, the sort of ha. Mm-hmm music you know you you were left seeing that couple and realizing that they see the humor in the situation but they also just got out of hell on earth
0: so it's not that funny to them
3: yeah I think it's more funny to us than to them which is good
0: all right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. With the first, we'll hear from Noah Eisenberg, the author of Edgar G. Almer, a filmmaker at the margins. In the second, we'll hear from our old friend Ed Pettit about Edgar Allan Poe and how the Black Cat stacks up against its source material. And you'll hear both of those right after these brief messages. It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals.
4: For the sake the manager, you'd love it.
5: In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle
3: anything. Action.
1: Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance.
3: Now he's decided it's time to go back
5: For just one more adventure Humans are such easy prey Noel Meller presents You're the problem, you little The Adventures in
3: VHS Podcast Join me, Noel Meller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of X rental 80s VHS classics And speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them the Adventures in VHS podcast.
2: Thank you. Have a nice day.
3: Download today from
0: iTunes by searching for Adventures of VHS or visit AdventuresandVHS.com. Scientists, newsmakers, policy changers, advocates, and more. Join me, international award-winning journalist Michael Howie, as I interview those in the know on wildlife issues and advocacy around the world on Defender Radio. Posted every Monday on the iTunes Store and at FurBearDefenders.com. Listen to Defender Radio, and you, too, can stay informed and
5: stay strong. Presented by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals.
2: Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema.
1: We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests... We handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201.
0: What was the first Ulmer film that you saw?
1: It's funny. I think it may have actually been The Black Cat. I think that I saw The Black Cat many years ago and I may have even seen it before then, but I think I saw it and, and, and have it in memory when I was studying Weimar cinema at UC Berkeley in the early 90s. And somebody had told me, oh, you know, you got to see this, this this movie because it, it really is, it's a funny throwback in a way to Weimar, but made in the U.S. There are all sorts of these you know, it's kind of the afterlife of Weimar and and I said, Oh, I should go see it and I checked it out and I think that's the first time I saw it was in the nineties. I was TA'ing for a Weimar cinema class and I watched it just to see what the person who told me about it, what what he meant. I think it actually may have been my dissertation advisor. But I may have watched it earlier, you know, one of those Saturday matinees or you know the, the 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 many many times that the film was broadcast during my childhood I may have, I may have also seen a lot of horror films uh, as a kid um and I may have seen it then. but I just I'm not sure. You know I can't remember which Lugosi Karlo- Karloff movie it was. <laughs> and they all kind of become one after after uh, enough viewings. And so, but I believe uh, the Black Cat may have been the first Omar film, unless prior to that I had seen Menschen am Sonntag People on Sunday, which is his late Weimar silent that he co-directed with uh, Robert Siedlecki. And then Detour came soon after. But I think I think those are the first films that
0: I saw by Ulmer now this was Ulmer it wasn't his first foray into American filmmaking he did the Damaged Lives film before yeah, this yeah but that was done for the Canadian what is it Hygiene Council I think
1: is what it was called so I'm not sure you'd really call that I mean that's more of a, a curio on his you know CV than it is an actual full-fledged feature film made for an American studio so, Damage Lives, which is, you know, was completed the year before, 1933. Yeah, it was made for for this uh, Canadian Social Hygiene Council. There was a guy named there named Dr. Gordon Bates, who was the the, uh, the head of the Canadian Social Hygiene Council, and I think he had a hand. And there were these guys, the the Cone Brothers, C O H N, who were connected to to Columbia, but the film was really, you know, it was an independent. And so the first foray into, and it was a brief (laughs) first, and it turns out to be last foray into, you know, studio direction was The Black Cat in 34. That was what looked to be at the time when he made the film, what looked to be a very auspicious beginning to what, of course, he'd hoped would be, I think, a long career working inside the studio system and as we all know by now that was that, you know that was not the case. For for better and possibly for worse. But when when he was tapped to direct this, this, this film, uh, in early thirty four, he was sort of a precocious young emigre in Hollywood who looked to be at the beginning of a very, very promising career. The way that things played out with this picture not only his Choice to stuff the film with with you know classical music that he did with the uh, you know working in collaboration with Heinz Rumheld, who later scored uh, a Yankee Doodle Dandy less than a decade later and picked up an Oscar for that, but it was really a very talented European-trained composer. So not only did he stuff the film almost every single minute of the you know little over an hour. Of screen time filled with that classical score, but also just all of these german touches the 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 the, the lighting just the, the the way that he handled you know w- w- would have i think and perhaps was for some at least and certainly for you know for uncle Carl, for for Carl lemley considered to be just too gruesome in the way that he handled those very, very violent scenes, but did so by aestheticizing violence in a way, in the sense that, you know, if you take, for instance, the scene in which, uh, you have, uh, Bela Lugosi being basically flayed by, by Boris Karloff. And, and, you know, we, we don't actually see what we see the hands and we see the shadows and we see, you know, that was, that was, that was, I don't think that's what, 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 uh, Uncle Carl had in mind when he gave young Edgar Ulmer the assignment to direct before he took off then for, you know, for the for the spas in in, in Europe. So you you have both of those things, and then you know, on top of it, as I as I, I write about at some length in the biography, uh, you know, he goes ahead and falls in love with uh, with Shirley, um, then Shirley Alexander you know, married to to Carl, Uncle Carl Lindley's beloved nephew, Max Alexander. And so, <laughs> if he hadn't already done enough with his classical score and with all of these kind of uh, uh, Germanic, you know, aesthetic flourishes and aesthetic touches, he certainly didn't curry any favor by, by running off with uh, the the wife of his beloved nephew, Max Alexander, you know, who later would become Shirley Ulmer and would be uh, Edgar's lifelong collaborator and, you know, the, sc- the script supervisor on pretty much every picture he directed. And that's essentially what she was doing during the production of The Black Cat, was training with, uh, with Maury uh, Herring to to become a, a script supervisor, or what they called at the time a script girl. That's, and if you, you know, if you follow his whole career, in 1934 it looks like he's, he's about to be sort of uh, uh, catapulted to, to fame and fortune and... Obviously, things don't things don't follow that 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 uh, that trajectory.
0: When Ulmer came over, when he emigrated from Europe, was he part of that whole wave of people who were either being persecuted or afraid of being persecuted? Well, that's a good
1: question. Now he arrived in 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 Hollywood already in the mid twenties. It's April 24 is when he when he, when he arrives in uh, Ellis Island. He makes his way west as quickly as he possibly can. I think he ends up out in, in the movie colony by, uh, by, by late 24, and that's when he starts working at Universal in the art department, collaborating with, among others, this guy Danny Hall, who does the... Uh, you know, does the sets together with Omer for, for the black cat. Um, that's a British born art director, uh, Charles D, but he went by Danny, Danny Hall. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it would be overstating it a bit to say that, 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 Ulmer fled to the U.S. because he was, you know, persecuted as a a Jew or feared persecution. Um, But when he was here and with the rise of Hitler, he was definitely attuned to what was going on. So on the one hand, no, he was not one of those, you know, refugees who arrived on these shores after January of 33, after Hitler's, um, you know, rise to power. But he was nonetheless... Um, I mean, like Lubitsch and 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 Paul Conner and these others who became involved in what was called the European Film Fund. He was very attuned to that and was eager to to do what he could. I think, and you see that in his even in some of his PRC pictures um, after America's entry to the war. They're they're really the sort of anti anti fascism pictures. Um, Tomorrow We Live, for instance. And so he was, I think, politically aware. Um, even if most of his family at that point in time had already made it to, to the U.S. and he wasn't fearing, as uh, were many of his you know fellow Austrian or German-born, even Austro-Hungarian-born um, directors, actors, cinematographers and so forth who were in Hollywood, fearing for their relatives. I think that that wasn't so much the case with him, but he was nonetheless attuned to what was going on there uh, and and was, you know, I think um, he was unsettled by it, no doubt. I mean, that's that's an understatement. I mean, I think he was really pretty, pretty... Yeah. Well, what I can tell you of this is, is that, you know, after the U.S. entry to the war... At the very latest, this is when Omer was lobbying for for U.S. and then he took, very soon after took took on U.S. citizenship. But even before then, he 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 stopped speaking the German language. He just refused to speak it. So um, so this would have been some time between. I'm guessing sometime in, in, in you know so, so 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 Hitler seizes power in January of 33. Omer makes this film a year later in 34. I think it's sometime in the late '30s that he just decided that he was no longer going to speak speak German. And his daughter Ariane says that he, you know, he would only use it to count and to swear. <laughs> but but uh, but apart from that, he really pretty much abandoned his, you know, what it parts of his, you know, beloved language. And he he returned to it later after the war. But but there was a period when I just think he he refused to even speak language. So that should give you some sense. Even if he was among the fortunate in terms of he, you know. Arriving here with uh, first on his own, and then having his, his, his sisters and and brothers and mother even make their way to the, to the U.S., so he was among the fortunate there. I mean, I'm sure he had relatives. I couldn't count them for you, but I'm sure he had relatives who who perished uh, at the hands of the Nazis. But but uh, I, I don't know of him speaking directly to that. Any of his private writing or even anecdotal information. I just know that he was deeply deeply unsettled by what was taking place there and and you know and I think you can see some of that in the blackhead and especially in that you know that the, the parts of this the the, the the script that were never you know that he was never really able to to, to shoot and and you know the film is it, it, it's it, it's his first foray into sort of relatively mm-hmm large budget and certainly, you know, studio, you know, working at Universal, that was a pretty big break for him. Um, it wasn't MGM, it wasn't Paramount, it wasn't RKO, but it was, It was, you know, it was certainly a respectable studio. And this was his chance to make a name for himself. And you could see in the script he was working together with Peter Urich, who, you know, was a relatively inexperienced screenwriter who'd written uh, a few pulps and had contributed to Black Mask and other magazines writing under the pseudonym Paul Kane. When he and Rurik Crafted that screenplay in early thirty four. They both put in a lot of kind of personal touches in For for Omer, there was you know the, the the opening scene was not to be at the at the Budapest train station, but was to be uh, at at a, at a church. I think it was the Stefans Dome, if I'm not mistaken. But you know the cathedral in, in the heart of Vienna where 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 uh, Joan and Peter were were married. Um, and so you know you. you you have this kind of return to his former home, and you even have it with the you know the Budapest railway station scene, uh, the, those shots. But, but, but yeah, had he been left his own device, he would have you know shot that opening scene in, in Vienna, the the city with which he most identified, even if he'd been born in the you know the provinces and, and onwards um, in truth. Um, but he always claimed to have been from Vienna, and that's really where he you know, where he grew up and that's where his mother was born. And so it makes sense. So, you know, in this film, he, I think, wanted to retrace certain steps of his in a way. And uh, and you, you have that in the, in, the, in the script. There were a number of, of, you know, you asked about the connection to, to Nazism and there were a number of, of sort of allusions not so subtle even allusions to what was happening in Germany at the time and they were all of these these these, these characters who then ultimately got cut but who had, you know kind of basically stepped out of a central casting of the you know for the third Reich and and and, and you know they, they didn't end up getting to do this but but Ulmer, I think already at the time and this is very early 34 when when most Hollywood studios were not exactly doing pictures that dealt with the rise of national socialism—that that, that, that was something that was certainly on his mind—and in and, in and, in a number of ways that even you know these things made it into the script, even if they then ended up on the proverbial you know cutting on floor. But he was definitely thinking about those matters, They're looking for all the different names. I don't I, I don't know them by heart, but I, I could you know the the uh, uh, the different names of the figures that he had in that sh- that that shooting script of his that didn't didn't make it, but. I can't remember whether it was, at, whether there was a, a Heydrich. Let's see here. We have a, oh, no, there's a Frau Göring. That's it. It was to be played by a woman with a dark fuzz on her lip suggesting Hitler's mustache. That's it. And a Fraulein Krug and a Graf Trivers. And, you know, so he was definitely at least, uh, if not directly and, and, and kind of harshly in a more sort of political mindset, was, was at least playfully dealing with this, 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 these, these, these sort of questions and, and, and what, was, what was happening uh, on the other side of, of, of the Atlantic. And, I mean, that's, again, so just on the purely aesthetic level, whether it's in the music or whether it's in the visual flourishes of the film, I think you can see that he's still kind of working through his, his, his past. Um, in this picture, they sort of kind of pivoting between, between uh, his new identity is, is one of the many you know one of the many newly arrived film professionals in Hollywood and and someone who still is you know deeply invested at least culturally and intellectually in in his
0: european past the war that lettergast and polsing are are, Polzing are yeah. still playing out is that World War One that we're seeing yes, kind of absolutely. continued? Yes, yes. I just very, want to make yeah, sure. Yeah, no, no, very much so. It's
1: it's it's uh, you know the, 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 these are two veterans of that so-called Great War, and that Fort Mamarosh on top of which Hippolitus you know built his compound, is is this graveyard, and it's a, it's it's one of the many graveyards of 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 the First World War. And that is a, you know, I don't want to necessarily put poor Edgar on the psychedelic couch, but that's the war that he knew firsthand because his father in 1916 in Austrian uniform had died of kidney failure uh, on the Italian front. And Edgar is a very young, impressionable boy, young man was responsible for being sent there and helping to return his father's remains. And so he was definitely acutely aware of the atrocities that had been committed already in that, you know, first industrialized uh, war fought on European soil. And, you know, I think felt felt the, the rather acutely felt the, 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 the loss of that war in, in, the, in the figure of his father he was, let's see, he was 12 years old when his father passed away. He was a really a, a young boy. I'm not the first to point this out. There's a wonderful piece that that, that that Bill Crone did in Film Comment in 84 when there was this King of the Bees series that started out at UCLA and then, and then traveled uh, throughout the country. And in that piece by Bill Crone that was published on that very title, the same title of the series it's called King of the Bees, he... Was the first, to my mind, who made reference to the fact that that that, that oh, so many of Omer's films you have these 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 absent fathers. The Black Cat isn't necessarily one of them, but I think that on a much more latent level here, what Omer is dealing with in this ongoing struggle, this battle between Verdigast and Poldish, is 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 this. You know, kind of working through of the, the, you know, the the trauma of the First World War. There are many, many other other films in which, oh, from like uh, the Jive Junction to Ruthless to to uh, uh, several, several others, in which you really the, the 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 absent father is 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 much more obvious and much more um, central to the plot line, to the kind of psychological disposition of, of the figures portrayed on the screen. But that was definitely something that, that I think that Homer was, was. I mean, to, to, to the degree that when he went in, in Hollywood, just within the next year, when he when he writes this, this unpublished novel called beyond the, 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 the boundary and he dedicates it to his father and says very specifically that, you know, this is something that, you know, to, to, to his uh, how did he put it? He did it to his father, one of the many, you know, fallen soldiers or something along those lines of the First World War? He dates at Hollywood 35, so just a year after the Black Cat. He says, uh, to one of the many thousand soldiers who died in the First World War in memoriam to Siegfried Lomer, my father. So that's a year later, but he was definitely thinking about this, I would say, in the run-up to, to putting words to the page for that for that unpublished uh, Novel of his, Beyond the Boundary, which he shot through with, with 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 references to the sort of uh, uh, ravages of the First World War and the oh the bedlines and the brothels in Vienna and and, and 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 things of that nature, things that he really couldn't. I think include in, 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 in filming The Black Cat and yet again they're kind of they're there subterraneously and they're not they're even there on the surface And, you know, for instance in the depiction of this uh, Fort Mamorosh and, and just these, these bodies and and again in terms of the, these these allusions to Weimar Cinema, I mean that that that, that one it's a wonderful scene where the, you know, the driver, the Austrian driver is, 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 speaking to him in very, very thick accented English and talking about the, 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 these ravines and the deaths just before the driving off the road and having that, that, that accident. I mean, that, that, that uh, it's, it's a Dutch actor, I'm blanking out his name at the moment, but he, he really could not look any more like Emil Jannings in, in, in The Last Laugh everything from the way that he holds his umbrella during the rainstorm to to his button chops and, and just the way that he kind of comports himself in general. So I mean I think they're, they're anything, you know, and in politics too, I mean these are just they there's they're kind of a litany I would say of of references to uh, to the glory days of, of, of Weimar Cinema but Putzish, you know, was one of the great, great architects Jalmar Petzich was his name, who had designed the uh, Grosses uh, Schauspielhaus, the Great Theater in 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 Berlin, and then who also did you know he he collaborated in motion pictures, uh, doing the set design for among others, doing Paul Wegener's third Golem film, The Golem: How They Came Into the World, of 1920, and and doing those really really extraordinary sets that that, that he constructed. And so calling this. Figure Potsish was really a direct reference to this Yalmar Potsch. Uh So due to Hans Potsish rather, Hans Potsish was the name of the actual actor. The uh, Yalmar is what uh, is what, but uh, is what um, Karlov is called. But yeah, I mean, I think it is a very.
2: These
1: were maybe. Meant to be kind of, you know, inside jokes for the uh, increasingly large crowd of emigres in Hollywood, but I think there was more to it than just that. I think he also was trying to kind of continue to assert his ties to that, to that, you know, golden era of of picture making, and and uh, you know, and thereby grant himself access maybe to, to new projects and to different corners of Hollywood that he otherwise would not have access to. And so it was sort of, in a way, it was kind of a, I think, a larger part of this calling card that he was trying to craft for himself while in Hollywood. So even if he didn't have as much as he claimed in that very famous, you know, two-part interview with Peter Bogdanovich, you know, it didn't have as, as many ties to these storied productions of the 1920s in Weimar, Germany, he at least identified with them, and, and there, there is a distinct possibility that as a youngster he may have even, you know, helped in what today I think would be kind of more of a, a PA uh, capacity, a production assistant capacity, um, or perhaps he did actually cut out silhouettes on the golem when, when you know, when he would have been uh, a mere teenager. It's 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 hard to know, but but I mean that 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 interview with Bogdanovich is just another example. I think it's very late in life, and Omid already suffered from a number of strokes at that point. But I think that that what he's doing there is not terribly different from what he's doing already in 1934, namely trying to position himself as someone who's very much a part of that larger kind of cultural uh, heritage and that you know, sort of cinematic lineage. That, that that leads from you know 1920s Europe, in particular Germany, to Hollywood, and that's why I think you know his apprenticeship with Murnau is is so important. Even though it you know fittingly enough takes place in, in Hollywood, and so you know the, in 1927 when when he together with Rojo it works in you know the art direction and and uh, set design on on, on Sunrise. That's a really important moment, I think, for Ulmer in just terms of his sense of self and his aspirations and just his, his general training as a filmmaker. And I think he always saw himself as being, and I think of the words of, of Andrew Serres, Say- as being the sort of the rightful heir to the, to the Mournau estate. And I think that you can see quite a bit of Mournau in, in The Black Cat, too, just
0: again, purely the, on an aesthetic level there's so many striking visuals in The Black Cat. I mean, I'm thinking especially of the women in their kind of glass coffins yeah. in that hallway. Oh, my God, it's just so unsettling.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in that too, I mean, again, in
0: terms of really
1: uh, uh, angering Uncle Carl Lemley when he, when he returned from, you know, his... One of his annual trips to to the to, to the spas in in, in uh, what was then still Czechoslovakia, I, mean, I, th- I think that that uh, that seeing what Omer did there was was quite shocking. I mean, visually, just as you say, unsettling and striking, and and but, but also, I think it was Uncle Carl was not prepared for that. And as I, say, I gave the example before, also just some of the the way that he handled the, the the violence in the film. It's amazing when you think about it. I mean, this is the uh, right around the time that the Breen Office, that the, the Hayes Code is you know being in, beginning to be enforced, and it's amazing. I went through the code files for all the films uh, that all were made from 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 thirty four onward, and in this particular case, they were really pretty lenient. I mean, they were worried about, and this is something that was quite common at that time. Um, they were worried about the, 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 the possible offenses considering, you know, considering the depiction of these soldiers. You know, you have that kind of... Forced belt stick of the soldiers who arrive on the scene, and you know they're in Austrian uniform. And I think that that there was a there's a note in the file that's worried that you know this might be considered as some sort of defamation, cultural defamation. There, so there's concern about that. But there and and, and there there is concern too. Uh, you know, I, I discussed this in in the, in the biography. There's concern that somebody, there can't be any suggestion of homosexual erotic relationship. You know, between between Karloff and and Lugosi. And that's you know much much later, Harry Bensoff writes this book on 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 on, on the whole, what is it? Says on homosexuality and, and horror, and he and he and he speaks of of, of of Karloff and Lugosi in this film as this queer sadomasochistic couple, and and the main office was definitely concerned about that. There was also concerned, however, about you know there's that scene when Karloff is in bed and he's lying next to Lucille Lund, who's much, much younger than he is, who's wearing very, very little. And there, there was concern, too, of the sexual suggestiveness of that particular scene. And that's the scene where, where when, 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 uh, after the accident, when they arrive at Potsy's compound and he kind of he, he rises from his sleep, Again, almost as if he were being, you know, this is sort of a throwback to, to uh, well, not only to Nosferatu, if we go to Mornow but also to, you know, Dracula and, and Frankenstein. Just the way that he rises from his sleep there, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's, that's an extraordinary shot, too. But he, the, 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 more to the point concerning the the, the code, uh, enforcement of the code, is that he's lying in, in bed with, with Lucille Lund. Uh, who's very very scantily clad and later you know in the film and you you, you were mentioning this moments before you when know, when they're in the in the in the gun turrets and they, they go and it gets this tour and you see these women who are hanging there hanging in her case hanging by her hair it's really quite extraordinary that they were able to make this film and and get it through the green office and and and, and get it you know into the theaters as as, as, as they managed to do I mean it's when you watch it today, sure, it's not near as gory as is contemporary horror film or horror film from, from the past uh, few decades. But it's, but it's, but it's. I, I find, in certain ways, it's much more terrifying. <laughs> I mean, particularly that scene that I've now referenced before, when, when, when. Uh, I think I have even misidentified it, but uh, I think it's when, 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 when uh, has excuse me when 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 it's when, it's when Vertigas is prote on, on that on that rack and is you know playing him and you see the the dance i think before I said that it was pro at but but um you know when he's seeking revenge it's a pretty you know i would say pretty pretty terrifying uh scene i mean again maybe nothing in comparison to what's 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 been made in that particular arena in the past few decades, but I think despite that, despite the the uh, you know, what, what what can now be shown on screen I think it's, you know, this is one of those many instances when the code actually forced directors and their technical crews to to be more imaginative, and I think it's that, 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 that imaginative horror in this film that's actually so terrifying. It's not really what's shown, it's what's suggested.
0: I just saw the movie for the first time probably about two years ago, and it really got to me. It just really affected me so much, and especially, yeah, that fleeing scene. And I was always curious if that had been cut or if it was shot the way that it was shot.
1: That's a good question. I, I, I don't know whether they cut there. I don't believe so. I don't recall coming across in the files, Universal, I don't recall coming across any mention of the pe- cutting, cutting there were other things that were, were of course, cut, but I, I think it was shot the way that, you know, the shooting script, I think it pretty much adhered closely to that. I, I don't believe that there were any major cuts, and I don't, you know, oddly enough, again, going through the, you know, the PCA files, the production code administration files, I don't recall seeing any major demands there. It packs a pretty strong punch for you know a, a film that barely stretches over 60, 67 minutes, and and that was made in thirty four. It's 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 pretty damn terrifying, <laughs> and you know it's funny. It, it, it's one of those films that it has it has because mainly because it's part of the Universal horror cycle because it's you know the first of whatever it was eight. I think it was eight pictures in which Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff you know played opposite of of, of one another. It, you know it has a kind of cult following. Mm-hmm. And it often makes the rounds at different horror festivals. Oh, after making this film, and when 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 things were looking still looking good for him at uh, Universal, they already announced that what they were going to have him do after this was Bluebeard, which is another horror film that doesn't make for for another uh, near a decade when he's at DRC. And and the Horrible Imaginings Festival this 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 uh this September in San Diego. They're they're actually gonna do a a thirty five millimeter print, a screening with a thirty five millimeter print of, of bluebeard, not 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 the black cat, but bluebeard, uh at seven PM on the uh Sunday the thirteenth of September. I'm going to fly out there for it, and I'm really excited about that. But but uh, the Black Cat has had a similar, You know, it's also made the rounds at these different uh, horror festivals, and you know, and it's and it's screened, of course, um, on you know, late night television. Lots of, as you can imagine, lots and lots of Halloween screenings, um, and part of that I think is that people, you know, bonafide horror fans are you know kind of gravitate towards a cult movie. Fans gravitate toward it and also I think it's got a kind of campy element that people enjoy I mean part of it when you know I was saying moments ago how oh, it's really quite you know packs a mean punch and it's still kind of terrifying but there are other moments where you just kind of laugh because it's so silly and again it's unclear to me whether whether some of that was really intended or whether that's just part of you know watching a film that's so corny from the from the 1930s and watching it through 21st century eyes
0: well, another interesting uh thing connecting Bluebeard and Black Cat is the presence of John Carradine.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And hear I me mean, here, he just sees his back is to the camera. Carradine does link the two, and Carradine was one of Homer's favorite actors, and he worked with him on, you know, well, first the Black Cat, and, and then and then Monsoon in, in, in 43, it's sometimes called Isle of Forgotten Sins, where he plays this, this uh, like kind of a pirate of sorts. And then of course Bluebeard a a year a year later. Um, both those films, Monsoon or Isle of Forgotten Sins, is, is the I can't remember I think it's in the UK that it was released under the name Monsoon in the U.S. It was Allah Forgotten Sins. But Omer had worked with, with Carradine, John Carradine rather since since, since the 30s and, and really held him in, in very high esteem. You know, Carradine was this Shakespearean trained uh, actor. And, and Omer, I think, uh, really placed a great deal of, of stock in that kind of classical training. And Carradine perhaps even more significant actually came and lived with the Ulmer family for, for a good long period. He was the, the man who came to dinner and basically never left. He came with his son. He was hiding from his then trying to avoid alimony payments, really uh, from his then wife. And um, he ended up living with the Elmers. So he was, he became really a, a, an important uh, member of the family, so to speak, the acting family. And then also really, a, you know, he, 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 uh, well there, I mean there are great stories. He once there, there was it the Garden of Allah, this 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 uh, uh, hotel in the swimming pool, the Garden of Allah, Ariane as a young little young girl was 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 drowning apparently. He jumped in and saved her so he had you know he he was sort of had um, you know figured with with, 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 with considerable prominence in the uh, Omar family lore. And, and more important than that, there was definitely one of the, the, the many actors that, or uh, I think one of the few actors, actually, that Omer collaborated with uh, over and over again. You could add others to that, to that list, but I think that Carradine uh, that was definitely one of, his, one of his favorites. Even if in, in you know, The Black Cat, his role is really rather minimal. Um, I think this was, so to speak, the beginning of a beautiful
0: friendship. I have to say, I was very impressed with Harry Cording in the film. He is so menacing. That, too, is another kind of, sort of, he's the way that he's portrayed, he's, he's,
1: he's menacing and he's, he's almost like a kind of golem figure. And I think that, that as, as Tomo, um I, I think that, that Omar was, especially, you know, look at the way that he's described in the shooting script. I think that that, 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 that was something that he was after. In this character, but yes, he's a, he's absolutely menacing. And even the the was it Aegon Brescia, who was who was like Omar was born in in, in Olmert, who, who, who plays oh is it Major Domo, right? He's he's also kind of a creepy a creepy character in the film. I mean the casting is is I think well 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 done in this in this film. Um, that's not always the case in 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 Homer's films, especially in some of the you know some of the others with a, with, the, with an even smaller budget. I mean this film was done came in just under a hundred thousand dollars and it and it brought in close to half a million at the box office. So 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 not 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 very bad there, despite what actually happened to Omer after, sort of in its immediate aftermath. I mean, this is quite a successful production if you think about it in those terms. And and those were precisely the terms in which, you know, films were measured and continue to be measured. That's what, you know, Uncle Carl was most con- concerned with. And in fact, that's why when he, you know, when he saw the rough cut of the film, and was so concerned with the, the, especially the use of the classical music. He just, you know, he thought of that as box office poison. He thought, you know, to have to to fill the the film with that much classical music, it would just ensure disaster uh, at the box office, And, and he was completely mistaken. I mean, it was a film that was at least said to have been Universal's highest grossing film that year. I've never spent time to confirm that I mean that's that's written about a number of places and I've sort of taken different relatively reputable scholars and film historians at their word on that but I've never gone to the university I mean I've, I've worked in the university the, the files for this film but I haven't looked at all of the other films to see, you know look at the box office turns and see whether whether that's in fact true. But in any case, the fact that a film that was made for a little under hundred thousand brought in nearly half a million at the box office that's 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 pretty darn impressive. Those are not normally the terms with which I evaluate Ulmer's work, but I think at this early stage in his career, it's a pretty 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 important uh, sort of um, benchmark for him. There are very few films. Of his some thirty-five year career as a director, that ever you know reached that level of commercial success that has to be has to be noted with a film like *The Black Cat. But yes, the casting I'm sure has to do something with that. You know, I think that was that was you know they they they, 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 did, they did a great job and they they chose some some, some talent, talented actors. I mean, even the 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 sort of the the vaudeville Borshch belt shtick the two you know the sergeant the sergeant and the lieutenant that's uh, you know Henry Henry Armetta and and Albert Conti. I mean, they're it's a small number for them and it's just sort of you know tongue in cheek, but they, they they do a good job mm-hmm. with it. And Omar was never really a terribly talented director. He came to, to directing comedy, but he does—he does a decent job there. It's you know, it's you know, it's with it's with it's with with, with a, a wink and a nudge, but it's 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 done well.
0: So, what are you working on these days?
1: I am in the thick of of writing a book about very different subject. It's sort of the the the, the, the I'm, I'm writing about you know one of the most commercially successful films of its of its era writing about the afterlife of Casablanca and and, and movie Love How Casablanca the the working subtitle of the book is is How Casablanca Taught Us to Love Movies so it's a very very different film a very different certainly very different film it's a very very different book and a lot of it will be built around reporting interviews like this talking with different people and uh and there's already been a, an excellent... Aljean Hermetz used to write. She was sort of a Hollywood uh, reporter for the New York Times and has also wrote a lot of obits for the Times. Um, she did a, a book. Uh, she I think the first one was on The Wizard of Oz, but then she did this round of the usual suspects, which is the history sort of, of the production. That's already been done. So the book won't be so much a production history as it is about... the. The beginnings you know, of the afterlife. How 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 Casablanca continues to you know occupy this very very prominent position in the history of motion pictures and pretty much all celebrations of, of certainly of Hollywood, but perhaps of movies in general, but certainly of Hollywood. You know, will we'll always have a a screening of of of, of Casablanca you know it's, it's 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 the the single film in the history of motion pictures that 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 has enjoyed the most revival screenings and i think it's also to to this point it's been been broadcast more on television than any other other film so that's something that i've been been working on and i'll be working on a on sabbatical next year and i'll be finishing it up uh, over the course of the next uh, i don't know Several months <laughs> into the academic year, it's unclear when it will will be completely wrapped up. But I'm I'm hoping to have it all finished by uh, spring of, of, of 2016. The idea is to have it appear for the for the 75th anniversary of the film, which is in uh, November of, of 2017, and is aimed really specifically at a at a popular audience, not at, a, at an academic audience. The Homer biography was published by the University of California Press, and and California has been very good, I think, at at, at, at reaching a non academic audience. But the 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 Casablanca book is really very very specifically uh, pitched at, at, a, at a popular
0: audience. Noah sells out.
1: <laughs> oh man, guilty as charged. When you work this hard on these projects, why not also uh, at least be able to squirrel away a little bit to help pay for your kids' tuition and that sort of thing? So yes, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to dig myself out of that one.
0: You are known, well, you're known on Twitter, but you're known otherwise as the Philly Poe guy. Why the Philly Poe guy? I'm
5: known as the Philly Poe guy because I, 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 I preach the, the Philadelphia Poe gospel, in that Philadelphia was the place where Poe lived that really shaped the things, that, the, the macabre things that he wrote. And it was, I think, the most important city he lived in as far as his as far as the literary canon is concerned. I mean, most of the works we read of Poe were either written in Philadelphia or, you know, inspired by his time in Philadelphia. So I give a lot of public lectures on on Philadelphia Poe and, you know, his time here. When did
0: you first encounter his work?
5: I first encountered the works of Poe in school but I don't remember how early it was. Um, a lot of people have those great, you know, you know, Poe stories where, you know, I was sick and I was at my grandmother's and it was this old volume on the shelf and I pulled it out and I fell in love. I don't have one of those origin stories. And I think I think part of the part of the Philly Poe thing for me is that Growing up in Philadelphia, I always knew about Poe, and I was a big horror fan, that kind of thing anyway, so it was just kind of, Poe was just that horror god that was always out there, and I was always aware of him, so I I can't tell you when I first encountered Poe, because it seems like he's been ever-present to me.
0: Do you have a favorite Poe story?
5: My favorite post story that's not that well known is Man of the Crowd, which is this bizarre story set supposedly in london that's that 's where it says in the story it's set, but he wrote it in Philadelphia, and as the character walks around this nightmarish falling apart derelict phantasmagoric city, it sounds like he 's describing Philadelphia in eighteen you know forty um, uh, around when he wrote it and I love that story because he also it 's also a mystery story in a sense. Someone sees this old man from a coffee shop window and he assumes that this man, he looks at him and, and can tell this is the most evil man on the face of the earth. And he has to find out his secret knows nothing about whether this guy's evil or not. Just can tell by the way he looks and he follows them. He follows him over the course of this long night. And, and to give the end of the story away, he doesn't come up with an answer. And um, for Poe to write that story at a time when he's also writing his Dupin mysteries and has has invented the mystery detective story, Uh, the mystery detective story is famed for reassuring us all that even when a crime is inexplicable and no one can figure it out, there is someone who can and kind of provides us all with safety at solving that crime. And in Man of the Crowd, you get to the end and, It's the opposite message. It's that we'll never know what evil lurks, you know, in the hearts of those walking around that we see every day. And it's a very scary thing. I love, love that story.
0: How about a favorite adaptation?
5: There's two great flowering of Poe movies. And and one of them is the Roger Corman movies, which I love. Um, and probably Fall of the House of Usher, his first, is my favorite of those. But the first flowering are the, are the three Universal movies in the 60s. There's um, in the Rue Morgue, uh, The Black Cat, and The Raven. And I love each of those for very different reasons. And they're all bizarre and extreme and, and crazy horror films, um, you know, and especially to be made at the time in the early 30s.
0: Let's talk about The Black Cat. Can you kind of summarize what the story is that The Black Cat tells? The Black Cat is a first-person
5: narrative told by someone who's about to be hung for murdering his wife. And we get the story of... He tells the story of his life and how he came to do this, you know, commit this horrific crime, and how he was caught. And it's also kind of a... Kind of a bizarre horror temperance tale. There were a lot of temperance tales written in the in the mid 19th century, and Pose is also kind of a temperance tale because it's a it's about a drunkard and how his how drink has driven him to do depraved things, and in the story. He talks about his early life and how he was always uh, he always loved animals, even as a child and had all kinds of pets. He had a pet monkey, and then when he 's older and he meets this woman and they get married and he has this pet black cat named Pluto that he loves dearly and as he continues to drink and, 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 be, and become an alcoholic he, he gets mean he starts you know yelling at his wife and mistreating her, and he starts mistreating the cat as well and he describes it as. He's not necessarily... He doesn't have a reason for hurting the cat. He does it out of perverseness. He does it out of this kind of desire to do something really wrong. Um, And one time, he grabs the cat and he cuts its eye out. And then the cat... Of course stops coming to him and won't come to him every day because he's he's you know scared it so much and then one day he he the cat comes and he catches it, and he hangs the cat in his backyard uh from a tree, his house burns down um you know he's he continues and and it's and it's this one thing after another as he continues to drink and his life spirals out of control, he loses everything um and then one day he's in a bar after he's killed the cat and another black cat shows up. And curiously, this cat also has no eye where he cut out the eye of his cat. And on its chest is, uh, it's all black except for on its chest in white is what looks like a a hangman's gallows is kind of done in hair on its chest. And he thinks this is strange, but he brings the cat home anyway. Um, And, And that cat stays with him for a bit, and then one day his wife, uh, he gets angry at his, uh, oh, I'm sorry, he's going down the basement stairs for something, and the cat gets tangled in his legs, and he almost trips and falls, and he raises up, and he grabs an axe, and he raises it up, and he's going to kill the cat, and his wife stops him and grabs his arm and says, don't do it, so he turns to his wife instead and buries the axe in her head, buries her in the basement behind a, a, a wall. He walls her up, her corpse up in the basement doesn't know where the cat went where's this cat it's gone now better not come back walls his wife up in the basement does such a great job he's so proud of himself goes up to bed sleeps well he says this is the first time I've you know had a good night's sleep in ages now that she's gone Um, the police show up the next day uh, looking for his wife and he takes them down to the basement there's no way they can tell this beautiful wall I've built they'll never know that she's buried behind it and he starts bragging about it and he's tapping on the wall look how solid this wall is this is great construction in this house and this whale comes out this long horrific wail, and the police are startled, and he's startled, and the police say, behind the wall, and they knock the wall down, and there's his dead wife behind the wall, and the cat is on his wife, and it was the cat that made the wail, and he is caught, and, you know, that is is his life story. So, the interesting thing about the story is that you can read it straightforward like that. That's the plot. There's one cat, then there's another cat, and then the cat gives him away at the end. And there's also a strange way of of looking at it and this, the second cat might not exist. Um, the second cat may be a kind of figment of his imagination that it might not necessarily be the, the physical manifestation of the first cat coming back for revenge. It may be kind of, you know, an alcoholic hallucination that he has. Um, and Poe doesn't tell us one way or the other, you know, if that's true.
0: Now, I'm hearing elements in that of stuff like the Cask of Amontillado, and maybe even a little Telltale Heart. Where does this kind of fit into his uh, bibliography?
5: Well, the plot gets Philadelphia. Cask of Amontillado is actually a story wrote later uh, when he was in New York, um, and uh, uh, another revenge story where someone gets walled up but um, much more masterfully done The Cask of That's like one of those masterpiece stories that he spent his whole life writing and creating this kind of revenge or or murder story and he perfects it in Cask. But The Black Cat and Telltale Heart, they're both in the Philadelphia days, and they both really represent this uh, kind of change in the way Poe approaches horror. They have very gothic elements in these stories and setting and mood and the way things are described, but Earlier Gothic tales of Poe and of everyone, you know, who, who writes, you know, Gothic tales, are, are often Gothic tales in the nineteenth century are grounded in the European Gothicism, where there's a supernatural element involved and Poe also writes tales like that but it's after he comes to Philadelphia and and imbibes what I like to call Philadelphia gothic which is a kind of realistic urban horror that is, that had been written in Philadelphia since the end of the of the 18th century by Charles Brockton Brown on up to Poe in which the horrors aren't supernatural anymore. They could be someone. They could be a drunkard who you're married to in your house. It could be, you know, someone just living with you, like like the, in, in, in an undefined relationship, like the like the narrator who kills the old man in The Telltale Heart. Poe's horrors move from this realm of hereditary curses, like in Fall of the House of Usher, that's early on, and then develop into these urban nightmares that happened in Telltale Heart and Black. Uh, Coincidentally enough, too, uh, in in 1839 in Philadelphia, there was a a murder uh, uh, that happened in Philadelphia. James Wood was the murderer's name, and he killed his daughter. His daughter had secretly married someone that the father didn't approve of and uh, tried to keep it a secret for a while. The daughter came home. And finally admitted to it, and uh, her father literally brought her in an embrace as if to forgive her, and had a pistol in his hand, raised it up, and shot her in the head. Went to trial, big trial in Philadelphia at the time, in in early 1840. Edgar Allan Poe is only in, had only been in the city for about a year and a half at that time, is is just getting you know some scrap journalistic work, and gets. Uh, uh, goes to the trial and covers the trial for one of the um, weekly newspapers at the time and writes about James Wood getting convicted uh, or I'm sorry James Wood getting acquitted of the crime they find him not guilty by reason of insanity that such was his you know mental condition at his daughter disobeying him that he went momentarily crazy and killed her and they freed him. Actually, he went and spent a little bit of time in an asylum and then he was released. Um, but Poe covered the trial and remarked upon, about how calm and cool and collected Wood described how he went and purchased the guns and how he went and how he planned to kill you know, his daughter and Poe thought that had he been raving and, and manic and and in describing this murder, people would have assumed, well he's so crazy but Poe thought just the opposite. Poe thought the fact that he was so calm in describing this that that was the key to to realizing how insane that he was. Poe uses that trial? He uses some of the same words in the telltale heart you get some of the murder talking about how calmly, how coolly he he did things. The same details show up in the black cat. so Poe uses this murder that he you know that, that, that he read about or from the trial that he covered in Philadelphia, and he uses some of those details for the murders and his stories.
0: This story was adapted a few times for the big screen. I think that there was a, there was a, definitely a Lucio Fulci version. I want to say that Two Evil Eyes used some of it, and I remember that was kind of what turned yeah. me off of Argento for a long time, was Two Evil Eyes. But most famously, the 1934 version, which sounds like it has absolutely nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. It has
5: nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. Black Hat uh, with Bell Lugosi and Boris Karloff, it says in the beginning of the film, it says, suggested by the immortal Edgar Allan Poe classic. But of course, the only connection is that Bela Lugosi's character is, you know, afraid of black cats. He's terrified. He sees them and he cowers, you know, onto the floor against the wall when he's just at the sight of a black cat. Uh, and that's the only connection.
1: Unless you you
5: want to you want to play up the kind of thematic elements of it the the, the kind of what, what's the, what's the, as the Karloff says in the film are we both not the living dead uh, it's a movie about the dead kind of returning for revenge and that's kind of a theme in the story and that's in, that's in the film as well. Uh, and the black cat itself at one at one point in the film Lucosi the first time he sees the cat he cower's and then he grabs a knife and he throws it and you get the impression that he's hit the cat and perhaps killed it with a knife. And then but they don't say anything about it. and then later the the cat again shows up. As he's about to shoot Karloff, and then he sees the cat, he's afraid and he drops the gun. So, even that element that there's a cat that it seems as if he's killed and then it returns, um, but that's it. <laughs> it's not really a. Um, uh, uh, it, it's not a Poe adaptation. And universal had, had had done and and this was the this is that first flowering i mean universal had just done dracula and frankenstein and and the mummy and they were do and they decided hey let's do poe and poe had this is the first time poe's really done on film you know uh, as a, in, as as horror stories there have been a few sporadic here there 's some silent you know biopics of Poe d w Griffith made a, made a biopic of Poe but this is a conscious effort from a studio to say let 's play out the horror let 's make horror movies and let 's use Poe because so they start with murders in the room more with with Lugosi, and then the black cat, and then the Raven, um, which is a, and the raven after the black cat that 's that's Carloff and Legosi, and it's, it's about a guy that Legosi plays who's obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe and his works. And, and so the movie's really about someone's obsession with Poe, which makes it very interesting as well. All of these films, increasingly, they, they kind of use less of Poe's plots and ideas, but they're really crucial. They're really crucial in establishing Edgar Allan Poe as that kind of master of the macabre in American popular culture. American literature is kind of only it's not it's it, in the schools at the time it's not really taught the way they teach it now where you where you get poems and stories and then you read them and you analyze them and this classroom discussion about them. It's more of uh, either learning poems by heart recitation or looking at kind of American literary history, and, and that's, what, that's what American literature textbooks are like for, for kids in school then. And you see Poe's place in American literary history. Poe's taught as kind of to children, and, and not to college at all. College wouldn't touch Poe until probably the 50s or maybe the 1960s. Poe's taught as this kind of uh, an important contributor to American literature, and then maybe the students would read the stories and poems either in class or perhaps on their own. But with movies now with what Universal did with him. They kind of, movies move Poe into this broader pop culture stream. You know, movies take him out of that purely literary thing and they establish him in the pop culture realm. And that's really the beginning of Poe on a much wider basis. You know, as you know, October every year isn't a Halloween month. It's Poe month for me. You know, everybody wants to do Poe stuff and know about Poe, and I-, I think you can trace it back to really movies using him, and they marketed it on purpose that way. I have a a thing here from the from the the the, the press book for the from the publicity department from Universal, and for the Black Cat. The, here's a quote. Because of the tremendous reputation which Edgar Allan Poe enjoys, his words are used in many literature classes throughout American schools. Under the circumstances, tie ups with the showing of your picture should be easily arranged. Contact principals or teachers in your locality. And arrange for visits of pupils to see the picture in groups or to stimulate extra interest. Sponsor an essay contest on the subject of Edgar Allan Poe's life or why Black Cat can be considered one of his most outstanding masterpieces. Be sure that bulletins or cards announcing your showing appear in every school and at spots patronized by school children. I can just imagine some school teacher in 1932 taking her kids to see Black Cat with Lagotian Karloff and the horror, (laughs) the true life horror that would have gone through their brains at watching this big man getting flayed alive and these kind of hints at necrophilia and stuff that's got nothing to do with Poe's story. But Universal was, and and Universal did that with all those films. They did it with Murders and Rue Morgan, they did it with Black Cat, and they did it with The Raven. Um, They really, part of their publicity, part of their marketing for it was to reach out to children to come see the. I can't imagine my kids going to see these guys. My kids won't watch these movies now. <laughs> and I can't imagine that this would have been considered, um, you know, proper. But, I mean, of course, Universal, it's you know, about making money. And they're always willing to play. And later this happened, too, with, with, uh, with AIP and Roger Corman. I mean, they make a couple Poe films that aren't about Poe at all, or they, they're, 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 they make The Raven. Uh, with 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 uh, with battling wizards with Karloff and Peter Lorre and Vincent Price and it's got nothing to do with Poe's poem. They make one film and they call it they name it after a Poe poem, the Haunted Palace, and it's actually an H.P. Lovecraft story. And they just have this quote from Poe's poem in the beginning of the film. And then they do the story, and then it ends. And it's an Edgar Allan Poe film, but it's not an Edgar Allan Poe film. It's about marketing the name. And, and very much with this, with this film in the middle between, you know, Morgue* and Remorgan the Raven, this, The Black Cat in 1932, it was really just about using Poe's name. You know, people know that he writes horror tales, so here's horror for you.
0: Now, if folks want to get more in touch with Edgar Allan Poe, is there a good biography of him, or is it still have yet to be written?
5: The standard biography is the Kenneth Silverman uh, one, a ground and mournful and never-ending remembrance. I hate that biography, though, so I tend not to recommend that for people. Um, it has it has uh, it's it's very updated. I, I maybe written in the late '80s or something like that. Um, very updated, you know, good scholarship about his life and what he did, but. Silverman doesn't seem to like Poe very much and and really goes off on that kind of bent where he makes sure that he overemphasizes all the bad stuff about Poe, which, if you're looking at his whole life, is just few and far between anyway. I think the best biography of Poe is by Arthur Hobson Quinn. I can't remember when it came out. It was sometime in the 1930s, but it's a great biography, and it's written very well. And there's another book by a poet who just died a couple of years ago. A Philadelphia poet by the name of Daniel Hoffman uh, wrote a great book that is called Po 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 Po, po, po uh, which is a you know a take on the Bell's, you know, poem. And it is a magnificent book from a poet's perspective about this great American, you know, poet, writer. Uh it's very idiosyncratic, very unusual book, but completely fascinating to read. So that's my favorite Poe book. I actually met Daniel. First time I ever met Daniel Hoffman, I said, oh, my gosh, your Poe book is my favorite book. And he said, mine, too.
0: If there was one story for folks to read to get them into Poe, what would that one be for you?
5: If you're looking to get into Poe, and especially the whole horror angle, I mean, you can't go wrong with Telltale Heart. I mean, that is the story that's used to get people into Poe. It's very short. It's a monologue from a murderer. And it is Pitch perfect, beautifully written. Um, there's so many great little details in it um, that really stand out, and you remember it. expect um, you can read it out loud. It's really thrilling to really read out loud too. So probably the Telltale Heart. Now remember, Poe writes across the genres. You know, Poe writes a lot of satires. You know, his horror stories are you know a third of, of the fiction that he wrote. So whatever you pick of Poe. It's going to be representative of a kind of one kind of thing that he wrote, but, you know, it's just a fraction of everything. And Murders in the Room Morgue, which I always recommend to people, is uh, is the first mystery detective story in fiction uh, ever written in, in the English language. And it's bizarre and it has a really weird ending that people don't expect. And I also recommend Murders in the Room Morgue.
0: Now, when it comes to biopics of him, now you're a big proponent of the John Cusack film, correct? Boy, i i
5: reviewed the, uh, uh, the i reviewed the Raven uh, with Cusack for uh, Cinedelphia when it came out, and uh, yeah, I was. Uh, hey, he's got a pet raccoon in it named. Oh, what was the raccoon's name? I can't remember the raccoon's name, but I saw it. You know, if you're going to have a, a biopic about Poe. Give him a pet raccoon. That's kind of, you know, fun and interesting. But I hate the the Lacusac movie because it just buys into all the Poe is a half-crazed drunk kind of stereotype, which is also which is number one not true about his real life, but also it's just a cheap way to to kind of align him with some of the crazier stories that he wrote and that well if he wrote this crazy stuff, he must have been crazy in some way and and that's just absurd. So and it's and it's a dumb movie and the whole mystery of the movie is awful and you get to the end and you find out the killer is, you like what that's dumb
2: <laughs>
5: and then and then there's this and then Poe is completely ineffectual and it's somebody else that has to catch the killer and Poe just like ah, I guess I lose everything and goes to a park bench and sits and dies and the whole movie had been portraying him as this kind of had been building him up as, a, as this kind of heroic figure that I'm going to solve the crime I'm going to save the day I like that about taking literary taking authors and making them into these kind of heroic figures and for the poem that just it does that and just drops it and, and it's just yeah, that's a mess that movie so that was very that was very disappointing so it's all Baltimore centered Poe's in Baltimore he wasn't in Baltimore then and that uh, was ridiculous I hate that
0: well you are the Philly Poe guy
5: <laughs> so I have to represent the Philly Poe so
0: that's right do you have anything that you want to plug
5: I'm doing posts around Philly, uh, you know, because October comes up, and, you know, I'm, uh, I, I go out and I read post poetry at places. I'm doing that at one of the libraries, and I'm doing a post seminar, which I'm really excited about, with the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia is a great book museum, book collection, you know, uh, amassed by a S.W. Rosenbach in the early 20th century, and now it's a museum. They have the, they have the, uh, Ulysses, the manuscript of James Joyce's Ulysses. They have um, Bram Stoker's Notes for Dracula. Um, they just acquired a first edition Frankenstein. I think that's the only one in, in, in the Philadelphia area. They're part of the free library system of Philadelphia, so I'm going to go in and do a seminar. Uh, and we, for five Saturdays from October through, until the first Saturday, December, um, uh, we'll go over, we'll meet in the Rare Book Department at the Free Library of Philadelphia, which has an enormous Poe collection, and they have Grip the Raven, Charles Dickens's Raven that probably inspired Poe to use the Raven for, for his poem, and we're going to talk about Poe's works and stories, and, and it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a lot of fun, and it'll be nice to just teach Poe. And that's what I get to do.
2: Many songs have been written about the faithful dog, the strong horse, the dragon, and the kangaroo. But I'm persuaded that the most faithful, unforgettable character of all is
1: the home-loving cat. And this is his true story.
0: Now, old Uncle John had troubles of his own. Had an old yellow cat that wouldn't leave home. He tried
5: everything he knew to keep the cat away. Even gave it to a preacher and he told him for it to stay.
2: He brought the cat came back, the cat came back. I thought it was a corner, but the cat came back cause he wouldn't stay away.
3: We're back, and we're talking about The Black Cat. Now, the film is 81 years old. It might actually be the oldest film we've covered so far. That is until we cover Hexen in October. So uh, how does the film hold up with time? What do you think our special guest co-hosts, Miss Maitland?
4: I think it holds up incredibly well. First, it's incredibly stylistically sophisticated. Everything about the way it's staged, shot, set-directed, is extraordinary. And frankly, the acting is surprisingly good for yeah, mostly a cast of people who were just regular contract players, but also Bella Ludosi, who was not a bad actor by any stretch of the imagination, but who did tend to act for the stage rather than for the screen. And there are a number of moments in this film where I think his performance is really remarkably sophisticated and makes the incredible tragedy at this film's heart, which is the tragedy of people who have been destroyed by the past, two men who were part of that past, and then this young couple who aren't part of it but get sucked into it by sheer coincidence. They're taking a train to Vienna. There's an accident. They wind up in this old dark house in the middle of the night, drawn into these hor- this horrible drama playing out between Kölzig and... Um, that has its roots in things that happened almost 20 years ago when the American couple were kids. I mean, what do you think they are, maybe 25?
2: Yeah, if that.
4: Yeah, so they were kids when all of this happened, and I'm sure they heard about it from their parents and their grandparents, but it's, it's ancient history to them, and they get sucked back into it like the jaws of hell have just closed around their hips. So it, it's... Um, I think it's a very resonant story that pretty much everybody living in today's world can identify with, because I think most of us have either had the experience of having to push past something that happened in our past, that it was difficult and damaging, but that you either had to get past or you let it destroy your life, or have known people who have had that experience, experiences that often come from war, but also from, you know, sexual abuse, family abuse, uh, all kinds of things that can mire you in the past and keep you from moving forward with your life. Uh, this movie really dramatizes that kind of struggle extremely effectively and is, as as you said, you know, 80 years old. It, it, it's real proof that times change, but people and their problems really don't.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Usually on this show, we're talking about Watergate, the assassination of JFK, about Vietnam, but really, the more things change, the more they stay the same because the same effects that we talk about when it comes to nations and mourning about uh, Vietnam, here we are talking about nations and mourning when it comes to World War One. Just different folks being put in a different place, and you know, having an emigre director definitely helps. Uh, speak to that as far as that being at the core of this film and it really does have that same kind of resonance that we're going to see in something like a a coming home or or any of the post Vietnam films or even the ones that we talk about on here where we don't necessarily think that that is at the core of the film but has that long shadow that reaches over it
4: actually it's a movie that really makes me think about Virginia Woolf's novel uh, Mrs. Dalloway which is very much tied up with Post, uh, you know, post-war traumatic uh, syndrome in relation to World War One, and that's often not what people focus on when they talk about that book. They they talk about, you know, the struggle of middle-class and upper-middle-class women in a changing world. But there's an enormous subplot that involves soldiers who have come back from the First World War who are completely destroyed by the experience. And whom Mrs. Dalloway encounters in her day to day life. So I think this is very much, this was something that was very much in the air at that time, and that artists of all kinds, from Edgar Ulmer making a, you know, a relatively low budget horror movie to Virginia Woolf writing a literary novel, were attempting to grapple with.
3: And either they would have been affected personally, or they would have known people, or they would have had friends who were in there you know, family members who have been through that. So it's it's just something that, that's playing out in the background. And it's interesting how they can work it in, how they can put it in there without it being sort of like hammering it. Because one of the worst things you can do, I think, as an artist or as a creative person is just to go, see, it's about the war. It's about the war. And just keep like jabbing you in the ribs because there's nothing more artless than jabbing you in the ribs when you're trying to make a point.
0: How do you guys feel about the score for the film? I know that that was definitely something that was under contention when it came to Carl Amell and what he thought that the movie should be. But I think, personally, that it works very well as far as this kind of wall-to-wall classical music or playing off of themes of other classical songs, but I can see where it might be a little much for people these days.
3: It works for me. Um, I actually think that one of the things with the earlier Universal films in like 31 and all of that stuff is that they feel longer because they're quieter. There's not the, the constant running music and all of that other stuff. And I actually think the pieces that they pick in here are quite good. Uh, the one thing that I had to laugh to myself about, and now it's become such a cliche because of overuse is the whole organ piece that's in there and how whenever,
0: Oh, the Toccata and Fugue. Yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) And that's another thing where if you're a modern, You know, viewer, and you don't put yourself in the mindset of 80 years ago, you're going to go, Oh, that fucking piece of music. I've heard that thing so many times. And so, you know, it, it made me laugh because when I thought of it, I go, Yeah, well, of course, whenever there's somebody playing that piece in a film that's at the organ, of course they play it like note perfect. And it's always like the most grand presentation of it, too.
4: So the thing I think that works best in this film is, is the Tchaikovsky from uh, Romeo and Juliet, which is that uh, theme that was later turned into the song Strangers in Paradise or "Stranger in Paradise from Romeo and Juliet. And I think that actually works enormously well and certainly builds on what I think music directors were starting to do earlier. I think one of the places everybody has seen it is in uh, Dracula, where there's a huge chunk of Swan Lake that, uh, that uh, again, Tchaikovsky, that's used in that film. But I think here the music is, is remarkably effective, frankly. And I, I wonder whether an original score would have been more effective, and I think probably not. I, I'm a little bit at sea here because, quite honestly, my understanding of how much classical music the ordinary person was familiar with at that time is a little bit sketchy, but I also think that more people were more familiar with things like the big popular classical composers' works, like pretty much all the works of Tchaikovsky, than people are today. I think more people would probably have recognized Romeo and Juliet or chunks of Swan Lake then than would have recognized them now and understood that they were big, romantic, classical pieces that had a particular resonance.
3: Which would have been the major source of entertainment for people at the time would have been radio. And most radio stations in major cities had their own orchestras, and they played a lot of classical music on the air at the time. So between that and then also going to film where you may have certain performances that could be organ if it was during the silent era or or a small orchestra I think people would have been much more familiar with, with classical pieces even though they may not have known who the composer was or what piece went where in that particular way I think they definitely would have been more versed in it than today where you really have to kind of seek it out if you want classical music you're either listening to a public radio station or you're going to the symphony or you know your kid plays violin and therefore you have to listen to it you know when they're going to school or whatever. But its um, it, I think it was much more upfront in the time because, I mean, what, in the 20s, 30s, you had, okay, maybe like some Tin Pan Alley kind of stuff, early jazz, but even that was kind of marginalized at the time.
4: And one of the things I actually noticed with this film as compared, say, to a film like Dracula was that you have music absolutely throughout, which is, um, I think, remarkably effective, you know I think that when you look at Dracula you're looking at a film where and that's only three years earlier where filmmakers studio heads were trying to figure out what the function of music in movies was and we're trying to decide well what's too much uh, what what sets a tone what's going to interrupt people's attention and draw them out of the fiction and in this film it, it really is very thoroughly integrated in a way that I think is very effective. I watched this movie again this afternoon, and for big chunks of it, I really wasn't aware of the music except to the degree that I was aware because I was attempting to be aware of everything that was going on because I was going to talk about it.
3: The only thing that I can think of that would have been sort of more music than film at the time would have been full musicals on Broadway or something because, granted, you didn't have like a running score the whole time, but at least you had more songs and more music through those things. And that would have been really the only reference for people to have that much music in one piece, in one sitting of watching something.
4: And that's actually quite interesting, because, of course, this movie isn't a musical. It's not all about the music. It is definitely all about the drama and the angst and the perversity of everything. And yet there is pervasive music throughout. So it's, um, again, I'm I'm not familiar enough with the history of the development of the use of music in movies in the 30s to really speak definitively to it. But I think it's surprisingly sophisticated for a time when people really were kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what stuck.
3: And and also they were up against the technological challenges because I remember... Um, reading up and watching things on Dracula. And at the time, they had to put the camera in this big box because, of course, it made a bunch of noise. And most of that had to be recorded live. They couldn't really go in and mix and punch post as much as you you know, could just a few years later. So I'm sure by this time, technology had advanced a little bit that allowed them to do a little bit more mixing. They didn't have to do everything live, like have some guy on the side of the stage doing you know, sound effects and, and all of that other stuff.
4: Yeah, but I think the phrase, we'll fix it in post, was definitely not a watch
0: phrase in the way that <laughs>
3: it's No, no, definitely not.
0: When we were talking offline a little bit about this, Maitland, you brought up the works of Max Castle, which uh, is, sometimes I like to treat Max Castle like he wasn't a fictional creation and just think of him as being a real filmmaker who would be very similar to Edgar Allmer. But um, Max Castle is a fictional character, as far as we know, from one of my favorite books, and it sounds like one of yours as well, called Flickr. So can you uh, let our audience know where he plays into something like The Black Cat?
4: Well, first of all, Flickr is one of my very favorite topics to talk about. I, I, have, I, like, I like to think that I have steered more people to buying copies of Flickr than, you know, the next 10 people next to me on the subway because it is one of my favorite novels. It was written by Theodore Roxack in, I think, 1991, but I didn't become aware of it for probably 15 years after that. It's a novel that involves a, a graduate student in film at the beginning of the time when you could actually be a graduate student in film who is working on a master's thesis about an old Hollywood filmmaker named Max Castle who is very clearly based on Edgar G. Ulmer and who, as the novel proceeds, is proved to be somebody who is involved with something far darker than just filmmaking, and that's about all I think I need to say about the novel. But Ulmer is very clearly the model for Castle. Uh, He's a European filmmaker with sensibilities far above the level of the films that he was able to make in Hollywood, which is certainly Ulmer and who the novel posits was tapped into a very dark stream of something that's being expressed through the medium of cinema. I don't want to say too much more about it, because I would love people to read Flickr and have the same enjoyment I had when I first read it of finding out exactly what was going on. I I think you'll probably agree with me on that.
0: Oh, completely. Yeah, this was a book that... I loved Flickr so much that the I think a few months after I read it, it was right around Christmas time, I ended up buying multiple copies of it and shipping it over to friends just so I had people that I could talk to about this book because I loved it so much. And it just affected me so much because it, it had that wonderful blend of fiction and reality that i love so much and you don't necessarily know where one ends and the other begins
4: what i loved about flicker i think was that it is so suffused with a love of cinema and yet it posits that film can be a very dark thing
0: there are things happening between the frames
4: and I think that's really about all we want to say about the secrets of Flickr, but it, it, it is a terrific, terrific novel. And uh, I actually met the author of it uh, under circumstances that I think one could never have predicted. I was, I was working at TV Guide, and we were doing something that involved In Red Line, Terrence Malick's film, and the producers of that film, Bobby Giesler and... Uh, John or Robert Rodeau, who were the producers, were working on a new project that they didn't really want to talk about, but they but they still wanted people to cover it. I, I think anybody who's ever worked in uh, any kind of writing will understand that. And they put together a big event to kind of announce the project they weren't doing yet, which turned out to be Flickr. They wanted to do an adaptation of Flickr. And I was invited primarily because of my Argento book, because they felt that, you know, Argento might actually be a director who could direct Flickr, which was a terrible, terrible idea, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but I wound up sitting across the table for dinner with uh, Theodore Roszak and talking about Flickr, and all I could think was, wow,
2: <laughs>
4: I don't love my life from beginning to end, but this is a truly great moment.
0: Yeah, I read um years ago, right after Fight Club, I think it was, Jim Oles had written a adaptation of it. And, unfortunately, I was not a big fan of that. There was supposed to be... I'm not sure if it was the Ull's draft of the screenplay that was supposed to be the one that Darren Aronofsky was going to be adapting or what was happening around there. But it just Aronofsky, as we all know, has had his name attached to so many things over the years, and Flickr was one of them. And I do think that if anyone were to be able to bring Flickr to the big screen, then Aronofsky is one of the people that that... that I would like to see take a stab at. I'm in total
4: agreement. He is somebody whom I think maybe would not make the flicker I would like to see made, but who would make a flicker that was true to the novel and was imaginative and transgressive, because God knows that's a transgressive novel, Uh, and fascinating, frankly. Probably not a commercial hit, but that's a whole other issue.
0: We asked you, Maitland, if the film stands up. You definitely said yes. Rob, what do you think? Do you think that folks should still see The Black Cat? Oh, yeah,
3: most definitely. I think that it's a great piece, especially if people have only seen – Frankenstein and only seen uh, Dracula and haven't had a chance to get deeper into both uh, Legosi and Karloff. I mean, the other one that I like and, and Maitland brought it up earlier is Old Dark House. That's one that I like uh, with, with Karloff as well. So it's it's great to see that and to sort of see how they were still kind of working it out. And I know the, the one thing that, that you said was, well, some people don't want to watch black and white film. Well, you know, forget them. I, I know that some people get kind of weirded out by sort of the acting style. They find it corny or they find it, you know, way too stagey and theatrical, and especially sometimes some of the line deliveries and, and ways that uh, Lugosi's doing what he's doing. But one has to understand that really it took about another 20 years before the concept of any sort of quote unquote realism in acting really became the, the, the regular <laughs> method of doing it. And to me, it's interesting because um, I've talked about this before. Me being a radio guy and have worked in radio for 14 years, uh, that film and radio kind of follow each other in that way. Because back in the 30s, there were those big announcer voices, you know, and it was okay to be the big announcery guy. And then there was a time when it was more just your voice. However, that person sounded; they didn't have to sound perfect, and that was okay. And film kind of went the same way, and that's what we're used to now. Or we're used to people just acting like themselves, supposedly. And I think that if people take a step back and look at it and put it in context, much the way that you put it in context to, I don't know, go see Shakespeare play or, you know, um, uh, older work in that way, then you can really come to appreciate it in that way for those who aren't, used to enjoying a broad range of film for me i didn't have a problem with it i didn't have to be sort of you know um vaccinated against those biases the way that i think maybe some younger people might
4: you know the thing i always think of was when uh, i was teaching film at hunter college and i would sometimes run into students you know who would have the response that you indicated to older films they would find them stagey They would find them artificial. They would have trouble connecting with them. I used to always show my students double indemnity because it was such a compelling and powerful movie. And uh, after class, there was a girl who had never spoken up in class ever uh, who was a a very, very pulled-together young woman. She had really beautiful hair, beautiful nails, beautiful makeup. And she came up to me after class and said, Oh, Professor McDonough, because they all called me Professor no matter how many times I said, no, I'm just adjunct lecturer McDonough, and said, uh, you know, Professor McDonough, I re- I'd like to talk to you about this movie. And I said, great. Talk to me about this movie. And she said, you know, I watched this movie, and I, 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 I was thinking, I, I totally get that Phyllis woman, that Phyllis, Phyllis and I said, Dietrichson. Yes, Phyllis Dietrich, Dietrich, Dietrichson. And she said, yeah, you know, that Phyllis Dietrichson was a real high-maintenance woman. And then she went on to talk about the film itself and and gave a very sophisticated analysis of why Walter Neff fell for her and what part of his attraction for her was real and what part was an attraction to an image and what part of it was purely self-destructive. And I came away from that thinking, I'm amazed by how smart people who think that they don't understand movies like this can be because... That girl understood this movie completely. She totally got what it it was about, what what the sexual dynamics were, what the social dynamics were, what the cultural dynamics were, and to me, that was evidence that old movies can be as completely compelling as new ones to young people.
0: All right, so we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
2: author of Taxi Driver comes Blue Collar, the story of three men who spend
3: their whole lives working to catch up.
0: There's going to be some changes, man, in the union,
1: big changes.
0: Everybody know what the plant is? The plant just shot for
1: plantation. And I was on that picket line every day. That's right. Man. I'm still paying the bills, the money
0: out of bars to support my family. Who
1: is it? Brown? Yes? Yeah, my name is Mr. Berg, I'm with the Internal Revenue. I don't want none. But according to the hospital records, uh, you, you, you claim six
0: and you only have three. I couldn't have all my kids in the hospital, man, you
1: know. Here, uh... yeah, see, we have Sugar Ray Brown, you got Gloria Brown, you got O.J. Brown, Gail Sayers Brown, yeah. Jim Brown, Stevie Wonder Brown. Who's Stevie Wonder? I was gonna come by your house and see you, but I figured
2: we'd a good,
0: man. Nobody comes near my house, nobody I don't invite. You know, you should be done with that now. You're behind schedule. This is company
2: time, Bartowski. What are you telling me, man? I'm going to be doing the work. of three men? Looks moment see? You're dragging.
1: You're always dragging the line. Well, the thing I don't understand is why you let the union rip you off as much as management,
2: you know?
0: I do my job. Can't nobody stay no different. I was my own man when I came to work here going to be my old man when I leave. That safe you all the time talking about.
2: Kid
5: okay, man, that's our union. I ain't got nothing but one guard.
1: Here's the safe. We'll talk to it later. Let's get it out of here.
0: I kept the notebook. Why? I thought you threw all that stuff out.
1: I hear you got something I want.
0: We can change the union with this book, baby. Let's leave me alone, honest, man. You know? I don't
2: talk to no government agent. We can't be seen with he does each other anymore. First of all, they know three guys there. Two of them are black, one of them are white. I want no cinch. Nobody. Ah! It'll it'll sent you. Sent you. Nobody back. We got the wrong
1: house. How do I protect my family? I'm the only one who can protect you or your family.
2: You're my friend, Jerry. But you're thinking white. American dream.
3: If you're rich, you can buy it. If you're anything else, you've got to fight for it. Blue Collar. That's right. We'll be celebrating Labor Day with our episode on Blue Collar with director and writer Paul Schrader. And of course, our special guest co-host Maitland McDonough will also be back for that episode. So speaking of, what is the latest with you? Last time we talked to you, you were working on some uh, rather racy novels.
4: And I am still working on some rather racy novels. I'm about to publish uh, a book called A Gay Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is um, basically Kinky Boots meets Local Hero, in which a gaycation entrepreneur sets up a fabulous vacation in a faux Greek village and sets up a fake Olympics and then finds that the Olympics actually take on a life of their own when all of the hustlers he's hired to just stand around and look good actually start competing, and it it really changes the dynamic of the entire situation. It's a a funny, clever, kind of socially and politically remarkably prescient book and a lot of fun to read, and uh, it will be available in early October.
0: Where can folks keep up with you with these books?
4: They can look up my name on Amazon.com and see all the things I've published recently, including all of
2: these books.
0: Very cool. Well, hey, thank you so much, Maitland, for coming on the show. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. If folks want to hear more of Maitland, go back through our archives over at projection-booth.com. I think you've been on, what, at least two of our shows? Mostly when we talk about Dario Argento because of your wonderful book on the subject But, yeah, it is great having you on here talking about Black Cat, and I'm really looking forward to talking about Blue Collar. Go over to our website, projection-booth.com. We'll have links over to where you can buy Maitland's stuff, some amazing books. I love hearing about these titles that you're resurrecting and bringing out to the uh, public at large here. So go over to projection-booth.com. Leave us some feedback. Head over on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you want. It's just going to help us take over the world. Thank you.